Good morning. My name is Jen Franklin, and I serve here at Canaan in the children's area, but my favorite job is I am co-director of Spark, which is our sports and arts camp for kids that take place in the month of July. It's an amped up version of Vacation Bible School. Um, we'll start planning that here real soon, so be listening for ways to get involved in that. Our scripture reading this morning will come from Matthew chapter 5. If you all will please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Canaan. And Happy New Year. Let's try that again. Happy New Year. All right, that's a little bit better. It's good to be with you all here this morning. Pastor Daniel was, was hoping to be here in attendance as well. Um, he was driving home from Nashville with his family uh, yesterday. So he spent a Christmas back with some family. And on his way back, he found out that uh, Pastor Brian has the flu. So he was going to be here today in attendance, but he's down at Windsor, so you can pay, pray for uh, Pastor Brian and also for Pastor Daniel, as he didn't have much prep time uh, for this morning's sermon. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 5 again, as Jen read it. Uh, we're going to look at it here again uh, in just a minute, but just so you know, over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be doing the entire Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5 uh, through chapter Seven is what we're going to be uh, looking at very carefully each week. Pastor Daniel will be leading the majority of that series, obviously. Uh, but if you have time in the mornings uh, when you're doing your quiet times to spend time reading and meditating on passages of Scripture, uh, that's where I would really direct and encourage you to look at over the course of the next uh, few weeks. In Matthew's Gospel, it can be broken down into five major parts and those major parts are actually all different sermons that Jesus gives. Uh, there's five different discourses in the book of Matthew. Some people say, well, it's, it's a reflection of the grace. You know, we have the five books of Moses, the law in the Old Testament. And now Jesus gives five sermons in the New Testament. The two most famous sermons, of course, are the first one and the last one. The first one being, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And the last one has caused so much so much aggravation and uh, debate within the church is the Olivet Discourse about the end times. Anybody know about that sermon? Yeah, even Daniel and I argue about that uh, at least once a week, okay? But the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful, beautiful sermon of Jesus, and we're gonna try to be super ambitious and cover all the Beatitudes. If I can't get there, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, not go uh, too far and, and try to say just a little bit about each one. Um, so you may just have to do further reading kind of on your own. When, it, when I was uh, just getting out of seminary in 2006, I had a chance to actually go uh, to the Holy Land and see where this great sermon was preached. It was beautiful. I had a chance to ride across the Sea of Galilee in this boat they call the Jesus Boat. It was discovered in the 1990s, and it dates back to the first century. Do we have those pictures? I don't know if I have, I don't have pictures of the Jesus boat, but you can kind of see the beautiful little area. So when it says Jesus went up on a mountain, it's not a mountain like you would think, like, uh, you know, this huge uh, mountain like Pikes Peak or something. It's, it's, it's a small mountain that's kind of on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, but it's beautiful, and it was probably kind of like on this little hill that, that they've preserved. Go ahead and go to the next picture. Um, there's a picture, of course, the Catholics, we owe them a great debt of gratitude because everywhere you go in the Holy Land, they have built a church building on important sites to mark those sites. And so this church building was built by the Catholics on that site. Go ahead and go to the next picture. There's a picture of me, a little bit younger, more hair, slightly thinner, less knowledgeable. Uh, but uh, I was there in 2006, and it was neat to go back to these places and see the historical places to walk, to open your Bible and to look at these places and to see that they actually are still there. This wasn't myth. Jesus preached in this area and he was preaching to his original disciples, if you look carefully at the text, but the multitudes all gathered in to hear what he had to say in this great sermon. I think there's one more little picture there. Yeah, so you can see the area is quite beautiful there. So if you uh, would uh, indulge me, I'm just gonna read the word again. So follow along with me and we're gonna take a part uh, a few of these verses this morning. I don't think we can get through all of them. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's what a rabbi does. He sits to teach, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we pray that this morning you would open our hearts and our minds to understand these beatitudes, to apply them to our lives, not just for more knowledge, not just to understand things, but God, Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to implement these things in our life as we know that Jesus, you are teaching us how we should be as Christians. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was doing a little bit of uh, study on the background of the Sermon on the Mount and where Jesus was located. And also I, I was like, you know, what have people said about the great Sermon on the Mount in the past? Like, obviously it was the greatest. Now listen, when you see the greatest sermon ever preached, that's not me today, that's Jesus back then. I'm just gonna talk about what he talked about. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt one time said this, no greater blessing could come to our land today than a revival of the spirit of religion. I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody ever heard of Oswald Chambers? Yeah? Okay. He said this about the Sermon on the Mount. If Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard we cannot come anywhere near. But if by being born again from above, 
we know him first as Savior, we know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. Did you hear that? And I think that's probably the most critical. In a minute, we're gonna look at our big thought. But think of this, is that Jesus wasn't just giving us a model to admire or look at, like a model airplane hanging from the ceiling, just to look at. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is, just to look at. It is a life to be lived by the power of the Spirit. Does that make sense? We're not just to admire this sermon. When we read poor in spirit, meek, when we meet those who mourn, when we read those things, that is the life that Jesus is saying a kingdom citizen lives. So if you're gonna make a resolution for 2024, there's no better place to start than the great sermon on the Mount. Jesus, help us to do these things. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. Amen? N.T. Wright said this, again and again, the Sermon on the Mount calls and challenges us to a life of radical discipleship. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful peacemakers and so on, he doesn't just mean that they themselves are blessed. He means that the blessing of God's kingdom works precisely through those people into the wider world. That is how God's kingdom comes. That's one thing to hear afresh. In this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be spending several weeks on, it's often referred to this first section, verses one through 10, as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes just mean, it comes from the Greek word makarios, and it means this, it just means blessed, or happy, or joyful. It's kind of that word. Happy are the people who do these things. Blessed are the people who do these things. And in this section, Jesus tells us what the blessed or happy life looks like when we can live it. The importance here is, again, not merely that these are things that we do, but the essence of who we are. Sermon on the Mount deals with the nature of the Messiah's people. I want you to think about that. There's all kinds of mechanical things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, like praying. Remember, he speaks about praying a little bit later. Pastor Daniel will get into this. And it's not to be heard by men, right? It's not this thing on the outward, right? Jesus says, go to your closet and pray because it's what's going on inward. That makes sense? When you fast, how does he say to fast? Don't do it out here where everybody can see that, oh, you're suffering from not eating. No, he says, make sure and anoint your head with oil. Make sure no one knows because it's between you and your Father, it's all about the inner man. It's about the essence of who we are as Christians. Don't ring the bells when you give so everybody knows that you gave a gift, right? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's the inner essence of the Christian in the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus, it's not the mechanical function or the outward actions that matter as much. It is the heart, amen? For a kingdom citizen, it's the inside the cup that needs to be clean. And then, as Jesus says, the outside will take care of itself. He told us in Matthew chapter 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Not what's outside a man that defiles him, right? The outward actions follow what's going on inside the individual. So here's our big thought for today. Here's our big thought. The Beatitudes are an outline of behavior for those who have been transformed by the gospel. 
God's saving grace is also, listen to this, transforming grace that enables us to walk in kingdom power, right? We love to talk about grace, and we should. We should talk about grace all the time. But how often do we talk about and think about walking in kingdom power, that the inside of us would be clean, that our character and our integrity, when nobody's watching, would be just as pure as what people see on the outside. God's saving grace in the Beatitudes is his transforming grace that enables us to walk in kingdom power. We're to be different than the world. Well, I was looking at the Beatitudes this last week, and I, I call this kind of like this first section here, when we look at the Beatitudes, a Beatitude sandwich, okay? So look at it in your Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. So the first thing that Jesus says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then the last one is, blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And if you notice, it's kind of like, those are two slices of bread, okay? The poor in spirit, if you'll notice, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a present tense, that's a reality right now. The first beatitude and the last beatitude are in the present. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this word for kingdom, it's a little bit tricky. It can also be translated the reign of heaven. It's God reigning in the life of a believer. So someone who is poor in spirit and someone who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness, right, that stands up and says, I'm, I'm not gonna bow down to a false idol, or maybe they're thrown in jail because of their beliefs in the gospel. Inside of that believer right now is the reign of God. God's already on the heart. He's in that heart and he's moving those people in a special way. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you'll notice, there's also a present reality to the rest of the Beatitudes, but also a future promise. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a little different though. They will be comforted. They're not completely comforted in this life. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. You can't totally be filled with righteousness, right? Whenever we're in a lost and dying world and we're not completely sanctified. But the kingdom of God can reign in the poor in spirit and it can reign in those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. These other things will be completely fulfilled at the consummation when Christ Returns. So that is the Beatitude Sandwich. And I call this the Beatitude Sandwich. No one else calls it that. Um, so you probably don't want to use it outside of here. It might be embarrassing. Uh, but you'll notice that that is what we call an inclusio. It's a figure of speech. That's where you can tell that what, what's happening here in Jesus' words is he's closing off. They're bookends. I started this way. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I end this way. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so those are... Uh, the divisions, the Beatitudes have divisions, blessed or happy as a person, and the results of that blessing. It says here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's talk about that for just a few minutes if you've got your notes. Poor in spirit means this. It's a sin-humbled posture towards God that manifests itself in the way a person carries themselves. It's a disposition that can be seen in someone who understands their spiritual bankruptcy apart from Jesus Christ. So someone who's poor in spirit, it's just the way that they, it's their posture toward God and the way they approach God, knowing 
that they come to him with empty hands. You know, you can probably think of people in your past and people that you've seen that really, they demonstrated this really well just in the way that they lived. They understood positionally where they were without the gospel. And without the gospel, they understood they had nothing. They're like the publican who beats his chest and says, forgive me, Lord, the sinner, right? He uses a definite article with it in that parable of Jesus, the sinner. They realize that apart from Christ, they have nothing. So when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to connect with this this morning. He's saying blessed or happy is the person. Happy is the kingdom citizen right here in this room who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If your disposition is that toward God, he is reigning right now in your heart. You understand that all of your good deeds, all of your good works, they are nothing before the Lord. Without Christ, you have nothing. Amen? Like nothing. I can't say that enough. Like nothing. We have nothing to bring to Jesus to earn our salvation. And what happens is, as you'll see, a kingdom citizen, they live out the virtues that Jesus calls us to, knowing full well that none of those things can win them salvation. Only Jesus can do that. The poor in spirit make, they make confession of sin. A man who doesn't make confession of sin and doesn't beg God for pardon through the cross is a blind man with a hard heart. We're all guilty of not just doing what God forbids, but of leaving undone many of his commands, sins of commission and sins of omission. We're, we're guilty of doing the things that he forbids, but a person who is poor in spirit realizes the depravity, not just of a man in general, but his or her own sins and the fact that they are unexcusable before a holy God. John MacArthur says that the poor in spirit recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on the cross of Jesus Christ. They perceive that there is no saving resources in themselves and that they can only beg for mercy and grace. They know that they have no spiritual merit and they know they can earn no spiritual reward. Their pride is gone, their self-assurance is gone, and they stand empty-handed before God. Do you feel that way? Like we should all feel that way. When we wake up in the morning, not like we're self-made people and we've done this great thing and I'm gonna do all these great things for God, like our posture before the Lord who paid everything at the cross should be one of humility and thanksgiving. Thank you for the mercy that I don't deserve, Jesus. That's what the poor in spirit do. Many of us, we just have the ability. I know I was under so much conviction reading these verses over and over again, like I haven't read them a million times, but it's just like fresh conviction every time. We can keep our outward man from too much trouble. But the poor in spirit realize that it is the unseen part of a man or woman that holds the most vile pieces of depravity. God looks through the outward appearance of all of us. He pierces through the veneer of pride and self-value he knows our hearts. The poor in spirit know this about themselves and long for God's spirit to clean the inside of the cup. The Greek word here for poor and poor in spirit 
It's the word tokos, and it comes from a verb that literally means to shrink or to cower or cringe. Does your sin make you cringe? God sees all. Many poor believers that I have met, and I think it is interesting, Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Plain, blessed are the poor. But many poor believers in poor places, and I mean physically and materially poor, sometimes they have a little bit more of an innate sense of their spiritual poverty. That's not to say that there's anything great about being impoverished. I don't believe that. But sometimes I think those who have had everything physically taken from them, the distraction of it all, they can see that like, I can't even eat unless somebody provides that for me. Like sometimes I think they can see clearly that, oh wow, in the gospel, someone has to make complete provision for me as well. I've been to some of the poorest places in Africa and India, and I've seen just within believers there sometimes a little bit better of a sense of like this idea of poor in spirit. Just realizing like, if I can't come up with enough money to even eat food, then I know that I can't come up with any ability to save myself. Not too long ago, uh, just a couple weeks ago, really, I was in uh, Malawi, the country of Malawi. I think I've got a little video to show you all where we flew over a refugee camp here with our drone. You can see this little refugee camp is only supposed to, I say little, it's supposed to hold about 12,000 people, uh, but there's 46,000 people living there, crushed in there, crammed in there. Austin Metter and I were there a couple of weeks ago looking at the possibility of doing ministry there. Um, the nations are in this refugee camp. People have fled conflict from Congo, from Burundi. Uh, you know about probably the civil war that happened in northern Ethiopia in the Tigray region about a year ago. People are there from all over the world and they have nothing. They have nothing. They've left everything just to try to live and survive. And Sometimes when I come into contact, when I find believers there in these pockets, they just have such an understanding, it seems like, not just of their physical poverty, but they don't have anything without Jesus. And while I was there, pretty interesting, but uh, these, these people um, that are in that camp, uh, each person gets $4 a month for food. That's what they live on. But I, I bumped into these Christians and they said, hey, we want you to come and hear choir practice for the church. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want to hear choir practice. So uh, Austin and I go through this, this maze of mud huts, you know, all over the place. And we're trying to watch where we step, like literally, you should see some of the videos, watching where we step because there's, there's like these drainage ditches that run everywhere and the place is unclean. And we get back in this little nook and, 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 and we find this place where these Christians are all in this mud floors just nothing, abject poverty, and they're singing to Jesus. And they're singing to the Lord. And I, I got a little video I want you to see. I want you to see uh, them singing. Uh, this is a song that this little group, this choir wrote inside uh, the refugee camp. Can we run that? May have to turn it up, I don't know.
You are God Almighty. Nothing else can separate me from you. They live on $4 a piece a month, but they have joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is reigning in their hearts. It doesn't matter if they're poor physically, right? And they come to God understanding they have nothing to give, that Jesus accomplished it all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the reign of heaven. Heaven is reigning in your heart when you are poor in spirit. The next beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn care deeply in this context, listen carefully, about sin, and they have godly sorrow for it. How many times do we just brush it away like it's no big deal or uh, you know, we go to somebody and we say, hey, will you forgive me for this? And they're like, ah, it's no big deal, no big deal, right? Like, sin is a big deal. It costs the Savior his blood. It is a big deal. All of our sins are a big deal. And we should act like they're a big deal as we try to walk in holiness. They mourn the evil that they encounter in the world and they grieve the effects of sin in their own lives. Those who mourn here aren't those who feel bad about some unhappy event, but are truly sorrowful for their sin and understand that it is only through the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that their sins have been forgiven. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would say, happy or blessed are the mourners? You see, we can live that way as Christians because when our posture before God is right in its right place, understanding we have nothing and sin separates us, we can actually have joy in the middle of that knowing that Jesus did it all. He paid it all. Have we personally mourned over what our sin did to the Savior? Now, as you think about 2024, as I think about 2024, we need to ask ourselves, when was the last time we truly mourned over our sin? We reflected upon it. Realize that the core of our being is broken and that took blood to purchase. The blood of an innocent man to pay for it. When have I mourned over it? You know, when I was first a believer, I, I don't know what your situation was or uh, you know, how you came to faith in the gospel, but I specifically remember um, the night Everything that was going on, I was up here in St. Louis. I've shared this a little bit before. I was at a conference for youth. I was 17 years old. And I felt this deep sin in the core of my being, like sinfulness that was before me, kind of like what David talks about. My sin is before me. And I didn't know that much, but I knew that I had to have that resolved. I was mourning over my sin in that moment. Sometimes what happens is as life goes on, we just kind of put a, a shell over our lives a little bit. We kind of move on. And what happens is we kind of pick up this dirt and sin from the world and we kind of carry it. And we don't, we don't get serious like sometimes those first moments when we first came to know Jesus, our first love. And we forget 
and, and we kind of get this hard shell over us. But the Bible here says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not just now, but in the future, of course, completely comforted when we are removed from sin and the consummation comes. In Ezra chapter 10, when Ezra realized that the people of God had intermarried with unbelievers, he fasted and mourned all night over the faithlessness of the people. Do your relationships represent faithfulness or unfaithfulness? Are you mourning over these sins and turning from them? David said regarding his sin with Bathsheba against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We love grace, but as we love grace, we must grieve sin. You and I can't kill sin in our lives. We can't mortify it like Colossians tells us if we don't grieve over it first. The necessary condition. You can't stop doing something that you don't hate. You can't stop doing the sins if you love those sins and embrace those sins. We have to change and have a change in our attitude. We need to take the time to actually grieve and mourn over our spiritual condition and the sin that so easily entraps us as believers. And the promise from Jesus here is we will be comforted. There's a direct relationship here between this word for comforted and what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 16, which is the comforter, who's a down payment for us, but our full comfort will come when we are completely, again, rescued from sin and all of its devices. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek does not mean weak. The ancient Greek word here is used of a horse under bit. In fact, um, southern horse breeders used to have a phrase, and here was the phrase, the meekest horse wins the race. The meek horse is the one who has most responded to their training. This is strength under focused control, knowing exactly when and when not to turn on the jets as a horse. A meek person controls their power by spirit-filled living. D.A. Carson says to be meek toward others, listen to this, implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. <clears throat> Case in point, has anybody cut you off in traffic lately? How did you react? Have you ever tried to call a credit card company and fix something? How did you react an hour into that conversation and they've switched you to three different people who are not from America and you can't understand, amen? You see, freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit when you wanna slay everybody, right, around you. It's like a horse under bit. It's not that you're not powerful or don't have ability to do something, but it's keeping that power under bit, under control as a believer. You know, you think about it, like what happens whenever road rage happens? Just a couple of weeks ago down here at Gravelway Bluffs, you probably heard about it. Somebody was killed, murdered, right? That's what happens. What is my posture towards someone giving me terrible customer service? I know what you wanna say, right? But what do you say? 
how do you react? Recently, I was, uh, I was trying to catch a flight in Malawi. And uh, I come into the building. We had to be in the building at 145. Well, it's like 143. But before I can get to go uh, bring my luggage in, Austin's behind me, Austin Metter and another friend. We got all of our luggage and we put it in this x-ray thing. And they're taking a while to get it all through there. We finally get it through there, and then we go to go check in our bags. And as soon as we walk up to the door, two African guys slam, literally close the door in my face and say, 146. Supposed to be in at 145. I said, I don't think so. Open that door, right? He said, it's 146, you're late. And I was like, what? Technically, I'm, I'm not late. I was putting my bags through the machine. I was in the building. And he goes, you can't get in here. Oh, man, I don't know you all in travel, but me and like international travel, I'm already stressed out because I had to like halfway undress to get through, you know what I'm saying, like security. And in that situation, what do you do in those situations? Well, I blew it a little bit. I got pretty upset. Now, I did end up getting on the flight. I will say that, okay? But I don't know about you, but I always feel guilty later. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who makes me feel guilty. And then usually I have a chance to go back and make those things right, but not in this case. The meek control their power and the Bible says that they inherit the earth. This is speaking, of course, of the consummation when Christ will put all things under his feet when he returns. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm watching the clock here, guys. For they shall be satisfied someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, not only hungers this for, for himself, but hungers and thirsts to see righteousness dwell in the earth. Now, I've never been truly hungry or thirsty in my life. I don't know if you've ever seen the comedian. What's that comedian's name now? He's, he, he slips in my mind. Jim Gaffigan. He's talking about hunger. He says, I haven't been hungry in seven years. You know, like we don't know what it's like to be hungry in this culture. But hunger and thirst in some of the places that we go as uh, missionaries from this church at different times, it's a real problem. And during Jesus' time, hunger and thirst was a major issue. People who were wealthy, they had clothes on their back, lodging, and food for one day during the time of Jesus. A few years ago, I was with a mission team over in Africa. Steve Treffs was with me, and we, there was this kid who was just eating styrofoam to fill up their stomach. Um, our kids, a lot of times in these villages that we go to are malnourished because all they'll eat is this cornmeal. It's called Nishima. In Northern Africa, they call it Ugali, but it's, it's basically corn that's mashed up, brought to a boil, but it fills up their stomach and at least takes the hunger pains away. But sometimes you'll see pictures of them and they have that little pooched out malnourished belly, which means that, you know, there's no oil in their skin, that their hair breaks. They're just unhealthy because they don't have the right food. I've never known what that is like, but I can imagine what hunger and thirst would be like after talking to some of my friends in places in Africa. My friend Victor Chibangulu would say, I'd go, I'd go 30 hours without any food, and he said, I'd come home, and I would be, it'd be late, and I would just hope that there was a fire going, because if there was a fire going, it meant that there was some food. He said, I don't know how many times I'd come home, there was no fire going, so I'd go back out and try to find like a mango tree or an avocado tree to climb just to get something to eat. What do we hunger and thirst for? It might be hard for us to kind of 
you know, understand these things, right, as Westerners. But hunger and thirst, you've probably heard a newborn baby cry when they're hungry, right? Um, they just have a complete come apart when they're hungry. Um, I remember, uh, you know, when my kids were little, we had Emma and Anna real close together. And there were times when they both got hungry at once, okay? And, and man, you talk about a screaming fit. Like first Emma would start, Amy'd run over here and I'd be like, what do you want me to do with the other one that's screaming over, you know, grab a bottle and try to make, do anything you could to, to make it go away. But here's the deal with a baby, right? They're doing everything they can to get what they want. Hungering and thirsting, Jesus says, for righteousness, for righteousness, for goodness, for justice, right? Do we, do we hunger and thirst for that? There will be a time when we will be totally and completely filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Boy, this is a big one. Are you a person who shows mercy to others? I think Jesus, a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, he gives a great illustration of mercy when he tells this story of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember that parable? Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall I, well, I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus told him, I don't say seven, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now the NIV here says, you ready? 10,000 bags of gold. That's how we would put it in our money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, 100 silver coins. And seizing him, he began to choke him. Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what he had taken away, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now listen to this. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now what's going on here? What's Jesus talking about? So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's this, right? We're the ones who owe the 10,000 bags of gold, or the 10,000 coins, right? Or bags of gold. We owe that. And Jesus gave us he gave us the cross to take our place and to pay off that debt. Who are we to not show mercy to someone who owes us a hundred silver coins? James 2 tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Are you someone who shows mercy to others? 
Theologian Donald Barnhouse once wrote this, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became a historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is equivalent to asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he already had when Christ died. That is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more. The fountain is now opened and it is flowing and it continues to flow freely. When we show mercy to others, we shouldn't expect reciprocation for that. That is showing mercy from the wrong motives and having too high of an expectation of our fellow man. But God always reciprocates because the cross is a historical fact for us. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you've already went over four minutes, Pastor Martin, and you're only halfway through the Beatitudes. And you're right, right. Uh, And because of that, I'm gonna start, uh, I'm gonna kind of bring this to a close uh, this morning. And so um, I want you to go ahead and just stand up for just a minute as we get ready to close. And uh, I want you to think about what we've talked about. Now, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted for righteousness sake, we didn't get to those, but these, these are things, all of these beatitudes are things, listen, that we can live out with the power of the spirit in our lives. We can live these things out, but we can't do it on our own. In 2024, there's no way for you to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this and do these things. And and none of us are gonna do them perfect, but with the power of the spirit, when we're walking in faith and walking in the spirit, we can do these things. Again, it's not a model to be admired. This is a life to be lived. This is the very essence of a Christian. Now, I want you to think and, and understand that Christ already, because of his, what he's accomplished on the cross for us, and he's poured out his spirit that we have the ability to walk in faith and to do these things. I'm gonna pray for you all, and then we're gonna have a time of invitation. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you have given us the spirit as a down payment. And, and God, we just pray that uh, today, as we think about this new year and we reflect on what all is coming in 2024, that God, you would give us the power and the strength to walk in a spirit-filled life. We do mourn over our sin this morning, God. We, we ask you to forgive us uh, for sins that we've committed even this morning, Lord, afresh. Uh, we're grateful, God, that you always forgive, that the cross is a historical fact and And Lord, that you are a forgiving God. You're full of compassion and love for us. Help us, Lord, to be merciful people. Help us to be pure in heart. Help us to be people who are peacemakers, who live meek. Give us the strength, Lord, as a church so that others can see Christ in us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.